Okay, y'all, turn your Bibles to Esther chapter 2. While you do, I'm going to talk about a class that we're going to start uh, this Wednesday from 6 to 7. You can come in here. We'll have social distancing like we have here, and, you know, you'll have two seats between each other, so you're welcome to come here, bring your mask, whatever makes you feel comfortable. Those of you that uh, are listening out there, if you're wanting to try that. I think we're going to do something, I don't know what I would call them, when, I think we're going to do something with a live stream or Zoom, I don't know, something else will be happening at the same time. Uh, but it'll be, I'm not saying this to like guilt you, but it'll be easier if you're here for question's sake. If you are not going to be here and you want questions, we'll have to wait a week because I, I, I don't know how that's going to happen unless, you know, we're like, well, we are getting, do you know that we updated our technology? We went from the 1990s to 2020 over the summer. That's one of the incredible things that happened at this church. Phenomenal. Like, I, I, I just am you know, amazed that we're into this century. Uh, so we're going to do this class called Race, Sin, and the Gospel. Uh, the need for it is self-evident, right? When chaos does that to you, when chaos comes into our life and comes into a culture and comes into a group of people, the need for a topic is self-evident. So everybody's talking about this right now. But here's the catch. The way through the chaos is not self-evident. The way of the great calm who controls the chaos, that path is not self-evident for us. Why is that? I'm talking just about the church. Why? Because there are too many voices. There are too many conflicting voices. There are too many bullying voices. There are too many self-important voices. There are too many <laughs> cowardly voices. And I'm just talking about the church. The Apostle Paul says it this way. He says, Apostle Paul says, bad teaching. It's called bad theology, bad doctrine, um, bad interpretations of realities. If you put a pair of glasses on, how you see the world. We're all interpreters. We interpret everything. We were made to interpret. That's part of being an image bearer. You were made to be a prophet and proclaim reality. The Old Testament says, though, that there's false prophets false prophecies, meaning we're all false prophets, so don't get too, like, you know, I don't know, jazzed about what I just said. We all spin a false world of reality. It's called lies in the Bible, foolishness in the Bible. But when, when it takes root in a group of people in the church, Paul calls it bad theology, bad teaching. And this is what he says about it. It overthrows lives. In other words, what bad teaching does is it takes your heart and throws it overboard. That's the image. It takes your marriage and throws it overboard. It takes your parenting, throws it overboard. It takes your relationship with your family, throws it overboard. It takes your church and throws it overboard. It takes community and throws it overboard. It can take a culture and throw it overboard. It can even take a country and throw it overboard. That's what bad teaching does. And this is what he says about good teaching. He calls it doctrine. He actually calls it definitive article, the teaching, because it's gospel teaching. It doesn't matter what other biblical teaching is going on. The gospel is Rome, and all other teaching finds its direction, purpose, and meaning in the teaching alone. And this is what he says about the teaching. He says literally to Timothy and Titus, it heals you. It saves you. It literally 
Christ who died to give us your heart, your marriage, your parenting, homes, churches, communities, our churches. So here's the deal. Bad teaching is like a spiritual COVID. And we're in a pandemic right now in the church. format of the church uh, this class is going to be simple we're going to be we're going to teach by way of asking questions so i'm going to bring two to three two questions probably maybe three that we're going to ask in the class and then we're all going to discuss it and see try to figure out more aspects to it maybe get a question or two that spins off of it but we're going to look at it and then we're going to look at the teaching biblical teaching we're going to look at truth reality in other words from the bible to address the question doesn't mean we're going to answer the question fully because you need to know that there is what's called teaching and doctrine and then there's applications. And what happens a lot in the church is that these applications that come from really good doctrines, the applications swallow up the doctrine, become a doctrine, and then it becomes bad teaching, <laughs> right? I mean, let's just talk about head covering, shall we? Oh, no, that's too uncomfortable. But that's a case in point, right? Then what we're going to do is we're going to take teaching by answering your questions. Not that that's important if you're here. It's going to be easier to do. And I will answer one to two of your questions. And again, we'll discuss it. And then we'll look at the Bible, biblical doctrine, teaching to address it and see how far you can go with it. It might be that our question is more of an application-oriented question. And then it becomes wisdom. Like, well, it might seem like we would do this. Now, there's, a, there's someone here who's going to help me with it. He doesn't know it, but his name's Gilbert. And Gilbert, would you raise your hand? He's a closet Calvinist. He's come out of the closet. He's an incredible theologian, but I'm going to be bouncing what we're doing off each other. So I'm going to be listening. We're going to be having a conversation about it. So here are some of the questions that we're going to ask in the class. You ready? Who are we? What's our true identity? Should we define ourselves by our skin color? Uh, can race identity, dogma, and activism, a race identity, dogma, and activism, can it change things? Change lives, change cultures, change institutions. What is justice in life? And then who's justice? What is racism? Where does racism reside? Who's racist in America? We're going to answer all these things. I know, and this, this is, you're like, oh my word, are you going to do this? Really? You're going to do this? Well, if we don't, who's, go who's going to? Where else are we going to have these conversations? As opposed to just tweeting each other and, and shaming each other on social media. Those are really good conversations, by the way. How should we think about white privilege? How should we think about systemic racism? How should we think about white supremacy? Why are the goalposts in the conversation about race always moving? Why? Somebody's got to ask these questions. How should we think about the phrase Black Lives Matter and the phrase or the organization called Black Lives Matter? Oh, man, everybody has these questions. Are police corrupt? Are pastors corrupt? Are doctors corrupt? Are activists corrupt? Should our government defund the police? 
What is our only hope against the power of racism? How should the church live and respond in times like these? Just a few of the questions we get asked. Gilbert's like, oh no, oh no. You're in, right, brother? You're in with me. We're in this together. All right, the last question. The last question on how should we live in times like these? We would all do well to step into the chaos like Jacob Blake's mom. What a warrior princess. If you saw her interview for the first time after her son was shot, and then you saw that all the networks flocked to her to get her, and now they're not. Now they're not. They moved on to someone else in the family. We won't remain nameless. She is a warrior. She was unbelievable. That would be a good way to start. To believe theology like she did boldly proclaim it like she did and trust in God. All right, let's move on to Esther 2. Are we ready? Okay, here's the deal. Do you like losing control? Does anybody here like losing control? Will, you like losing control? Fascinating. You know, we're going to have to have a conversation after church, like you and me, okay? So Will likes losing control, but the rest of us, I don't think anyone likes losing control. Do you like losing control of a love relationship? Do you like losing control of a boyfriend or a girlfriend or your spouse? Do you like losing control over your health? No one likes losing control of their health, their health care, their job, their bank account, their finances, (laughs) your home. Who likes losing control? No one likes losing personal control. No one likes losing political control. No one likes losing societal, cultural control. Nobody likes losing institutional control. Nobody likes losing control of your importance. Do you like losing control of your significance? Do you like losing control of your singular recognition? No one likes losing control of their well-being of their safety and their security. Nobody likes losing control of what injects almost like salvation into their veins. Nobody likes losing control of their world. When we lose control of our world, we experience an overwhelming flood of dark feelings, dark emotions that overwhelm us. We get overwhelmed with stress. We get overwhelmed with an intensity and exhaustion. We get overwhelmed with anxiety that just is paralyzing. We get a a deep sense of dread that goes down to the roots of your very being and just rips you. We get overwhelmed with this sense of powerlessness and helplessness that actually makes us think we are literally being tossed like a wave in the sea. We get overwhelmed with unhappiness and sadness. We get overwhelmed with just a sense of despair, hopelessness, and depression. When you lose control, these dark emotions overwhelm you. So here's the big idea of the text. Here's chapter 2 of Esther. Here it is. The dominant thought of the text, it's our sermon for today. How do you survive losing control? How do you survive losing control? We 
stand for the hearing of God's word. I gave TJ the wrong scripture in the first service, so that was interesting. We have it fixed for here. All right, it's Esther chapter 2. We're going to look at 1 through 18. So after these things, when the anger of King Xerxes, I'm calling him by his cultural, historical name known by most people in the world, not the name here. This is the same guy. It's easier actually to pronounce too because I, I can't pronounce this dude's name. So King Xerxes had abated. He remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her, right? And now he's in a foul mood, right? The king's young men who attended him said, because they sense his mood. He's experiencing overwhelming emotions. Let the beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins for the harem and Susa, the citadel, the capital, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. Well, this pleased the king. <laughs> and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, the capital, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. It's not important now, but you need to know that this is a descendant of Saul. It will come to play in the next chapter. Uh, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with the Shona, king of Judah, who Nebuchadnezzar, king of ba uh, Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as her own daughter. Now, every single one of us now at this point know what's going to happen, right? Is anybody going to be seeing anything? Okay. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when the young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in the custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken, which is another word for being carried away, into the king's palace and put into custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Now Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she was doing and what was happening to her. Now, when the turn came for, here are the rules of the context. When the turn came for each young woman to go into the king, Xerxes, after 12 months of under the regulations of women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months for oil and myrrh, six months for spices and ointments for women. This is a year at the spa. When the young woman who went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, in the morning she would return to the second harem. So once you slept with the king, you went to a different harem. Before you slept with the king, you were in this, this contestant home. And then uh, she would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, here we are, the daughter of Abiho, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had been in charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. So when Esther was taken to King Xerxes into his royal palace in the tenth month, who's the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, we'll talk about that later, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. 
so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave this great feast for all his officials and servants. It was, a, it was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission for taxes in the provinces, gave gifts to royal general. It's like he's just forgiving sins and handing out gifts. This is the word of the Lord. All right, please be seated. Oh, Lord, we ask you to shine on the page. We ask you to work through the wonders of your word. Would you wake us up? Would you cause us to come alive, come awake? Because, Jesus, you alone are the resurrected king. And it's in your name we pray, amen. Okay, big idea is what? How do you survive losing control? That's the big idea. So we're going to look at three characters that are losing control. The first is Xerxes. Xerxes is losing control. Remember in chapter one, what was he saying last week? Look at me, right? Look at me. Well, it didn't work out too well for him. He tried to become more, but he became less. So what do you do when that happens? Think about it. Now what? You tried to become more, you became less. So now what do you do? What do you do when your effort to be king didn't work out? Well, look at verse 1. Here's what he did. In 2-1, after these things, after what? Well, after these things, what happened in chapter 1, right? And after these things, meaning after the whole world was supposedly knew that he was in control, but he wasn't even in control of his own life. So he realized, the whole world realizes, we now realize, every century realizes, he tried to be more, he tried to be impressive, but he became less impressive. Here's this guy that's supposed to control the whole world, the most powerful human being on the planet, but he can't control his wife. That's a big joke in the ancient world at that time. It's not as corny for us in our time, but it worked for them. It was for them. Now, what does he do then? Well, he tries to expand his empire. So what does he do? Remember, it went from Persia to India, but he wanted to expand it to the Greeks, so he confronted the Greeks, but the Greeks sent 300 warriors, Spartans, at the Battle of Thermopylae in 480 B.C., and 300 Spartans almost take down a million-man army. Well, this obviously rallies the Greeks, and they get together. All of them now unite, and they defeat Xerxes. And so after these things, two years later from chapter 1, after all this has happened, you have a king who is defeated and depressed sitting in his court, and the young men see the mood of the king, his dark emotions and his dark feelings from losing control, and they come up with a plan. Hey, let's go get all the beautiful women in the kingdom, and you can sleep with them all, and then kiss your king. And he goes, that's a really good plan. You see what's happening? First it was, look at me. But that didn't work out, right? It didn't heal his heart. It didn't heal him. It didn't save him. So the, the next thing he does is look at her. He now turns to romance to heal him. He now turns to a woman to heal him. He now turns to intimacy to heal him. He now turns to love of a woman to heal him. He now turns to sex to heal him. What did he do? He just traded one form of trying to be king for another. So here's the question. How do you survive losing control? 
Well, Xerxes from the Bible is teaching us you don't do it by moving from one form of trying to be king to another. Look at me. Didn't work out. Look at him. Look at her. It's not going to work out either. Okay. Second, how do you survive losing control? Well, Mordecai lost control. Do you see this? Look at 2.5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives. Carried away with Shishona, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. <laughs> Four times this passage says Mordecai had been carried away or exiled. You know what this means? This means that, that carried away defines Mordecai. So when Mordecai thinks about himself and he has this sense of who am I, and he has this sense of his self, his sense of, a, of an identity, of his purpose in life, he has when Mordecai thinks about his relationships and, and maybe adopting his cousin who becomes his daughter, he looks at her through... When Mordecai has hard circumstances come at him and hardship and heartache hit him, he looks at it through... When Mordecai thinks about God and he puts together a, a theology and a doctrine and a teaching, it... Mordecai is carried away. He's lost all control. The carried away action here is not a good action. It's in passive voice. You know what that means? It's like this. If, if you're carried away, let's just say you're carried away. It means passive voice, which means you are not in control. Uh, you don't have the power because it's passive. It means there's something that has so much power that it acts on you. It turns you away. The image of being carried away is also not a good image because the image is this. The picture of being carried away is a massive dark power that reaches down and plucks you up. Mordecai's lost control. So what does Mordecai do? How does Mordecai live? How does Mordecai survive losing control? 2.5. There was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite. What are we told about Mordecai first? Does Mordecai's name come first or does something else come first? Something else. He's called a Jew before we're given his name. You know what that means? This is what it means. The most fundamental reality of the cosmos, the actual building blocks of the universe, the spiritual fabric of the planet, the actual human fabric that has us all together is being connected to God. Jew is mentioned first because it has a relationship it has a connection with God. Now look at verse 6. Who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away. Now, okay, we get that. When did that happen? That happened over 100 years ago. But you know what happened 40 years ago in Mordecai's lifetime? 
There was this guy named Cyrus who was also a Persian king, and he gave this decree because he was actually a servant, as Isaiah said, of the king, which is the real king, God. He became a follower of Yahweh. And he told the Jews all over the kingdom that he conquered in, in his kingdom, hey, y'all go back to Jerusalem. Y'all are free to go back to Jerusalem. And so Ezra, Nehemiah, other books of the Bible talk about the return, right? But here's the catch. All the people that were super saints left. All the people that trusted God and trusted his work went back to Jerusalem. All the people that had a personal dynamic connection with God left. Everyone who didn't stayed. The spiritual losers stayed. The defeated Christians stayed. Those who didn't trust God and trust his work stayed. Those that didn't have a personal dynamic connection with God stayed. Mordecai stayed. That's why the text says twice, Esther had not made known her people or kindred. Why? Because Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. That's why, verse 20, Esther had not made known her kingdom or her people. Why? Because Mordecai had commanded her to not do it. So here's the catch. How do you survive losing control? Mordecai, by looking at Mordecai, by not forgetting God. How do you survive? Not by forgetting God. The most Paul would call the elemental principle of the universe, God. All right, how do you survive losing control? Esther's the last one, right? Well, Esther's also losing control. We meet Esther in verse 7. He, Mordecai, was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure, was lovely to look at, look at, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So even as we're introduced to Esther, we know what's going to happen, so we might as well get to it. Verse 8, so when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the capital, in the custody of Haggai, Esther was taken away. What is it? Passive voice, a power greater than her, carried her away. In other words, she's lost control. Verse 12 through 14 tells us the rules of the beauty contest. Did you see the rules? What are the rules? One year of high-intensity interval training. This in cosmetics. One year of high-intensity interval training at a salon of their choice. All the foods, all the cosmetics, ointments, baths. I mean, they were doing all that stuff that now is popular today. What else was it? The rules were combined with one year of sex education classes on how to please the king. You had introductory level advanced classes and electives to your own choosing. And then everything came down to one night. <laughs> everything came down to one night with the king. And the text says, in the evening, she, the contestant, would go in. In the morning, she would return to the second harem in the custody of Shagai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubine. She, the contestant, would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. Verse 15 says, When the turn came for Esther, Esther, according to the Damian text, remember that, that line, I think it was in verse 10, where it talked about the tenth month of Pegas and the seventh year of his reign. It was all this kind of dating of, of his reign and when he came in and when chapter 1 and chapter 2 happened. And for scholars who really like to geek out on this kind of stuff, 
said what's happening here is that Esther is one of the last contestants of the whole thing. So one scholar says, more than 1,000 girls may have passed through Xerxes' bedroom before it was Esther's turn to audition. And she you really want to win. So, let's ask this. We have to. We have to ask the hard questions or, you know, usually what happens at this point is people try to justify everything Esther did or they try to explain it away or they just like, you know, uh, condemn her to bits. So, we're not going to do either. What we're going to do is this. Uh, why didn't Esther, though, way back at the beginning of all this when it happened, way back in the beginning when she was selected, why didn't she do this? You know, I know I'm new here. I'm new here, I know. I don't know how things work here, but, but I need to tell you I can't eat your food because my God says it's unclean. So, I got a shopping list, and here are all the foods I can eat, and I would be happy to eat these foods while... Everyone else eats their food. Why did she say that? Why did she do that? Daniel did. Okay, well, why didn't she tell the king when it was her turn to audition, right? When it was her turn to finally, the night had come. Why didn't she tell the king? And these are the words of the commentator. They were so good that I just, I copied them down here. Here's what he said. He said, your majesty, this is what, why didn't she say this? Your majesty, I know you spent tons of money putting me through a whole year of beautifying treatment treatment, and I'm not going to lie, it has worked really well. I do look pretty amazing. But I believe that my husband is the only one who should ever see me without my clothes on. And my God has asked me not to have sex with anyone until I'm married. So, I don't mind spending the, my, the night with you, but I was thinking maybe we could sit on that gold couch of yours and talk and tell stories and get to know each other until the morning comes. Why didn't she do that? Joseph did. Why didn't Esther tell the king? Let's say the king went along with the, you know, the different diet, and he went along with the no-sex thing, right? The king buys into it. He's like, wow, this is a different deal. I've never seen a girl like this. He buys it, right? And then he starts talking to her about marriage. Well, why didn't she say this? Same commentator. You know, King, I appreciate the gesture so much, wanting to marry me, you know. <laughs> and you have been so gracious to me, but because I'm a Jew, I'm not allowed to marry an uncircumcised Gentile like you. In other words, one who doesn't worship the true God, one that doesn't trust God and his works, the one that doesn't trust God to save them from their sins. I have to put God first or I can't marry you, I'm sorry. Why didn't she say that? Most of Israel did before the exile. So the questions that most people say is, well, why did she compromise? Yep. Why is she such a coward? Yep. 
What happened to Esther? Well, the text tells us twice. Verse 10, Esther had not made known her people or her kindred because Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Verse 20, Esther had not made known her kingdom or her people because Mordecai had commanded her. What's happening to Esther? What happened to her? The answer is she concealed her identity. She didn't live out of who she truly was. She wasn't herself. Look how Esther's introduced in verse 7. She's the only person in the whole book. The only person in all of Esther. The only person in the book of Esther who's given two names. Two names. Two identities. Look how it happens. Verse 7. He, Mordecai, was bringing up Hadassah. That is Esther. The daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. Hadassah is her true identity. Hadassah is who she truly is. Hadassah is the identity God gave her. Hadassah. Hadassah is the identity that comes from God. It is an identity received. It is not an identity achieved. It is an identity that comes from a personal dynamic connection with the king, the real king, not from herself, not from her race, not from her politics, not from her accomplishments, not from her beauty, and not from the attention of men. Identity in the Bible is such a big deal, y'all. Who are you? This text is asking every reader, who are you? Because the answer will define you. The answer will determine how you think about yourself, how you feel about yourself, how you perceive yourself, how you think others think of you, how you think others treat you. How you answer that will determine whether you become a being, a person that has worth and value in this world. In other words, you're justified, or you become a non-being, what theologically is called condemnation or nothingness. In the book of Ecclesiastes, it's nothingness. In Paul, it's condemnation. How you answer will determine how you see the world. In other words, your identity is put on front and center as a pair of glasses like these, and it's how you see and interpret the world. It's how you will perceive God. It's how you will perceive others. It's how it will determine how you treat others. It will determine all your ethics. Are you the color of your skin? Are you your race? Are you your gender? Are you your sexual preference in the language of today? Are you your beauty? Are you the color of your eyes? Are you the height that you are? Are you your athletic ability? Are you your musical ability? Are you the approval of others? 
Are you what Baylor says of you? Are you what big media says of you? Are you what politicians say of you? Are you what other church leaders say of you? Are you what the culture says of you? Who are you? Are you Hadassah? Who God says you are? Or are you Esther? Who Persia says you are? How do you survive losing control? Answer, not by being Esther. Not by being defined by your race. Not by being defined by a class power struggle. Not by being defined by your accomplishments. Not by being defined by others, even yourself. Choice. Power. How do you survive losing control? First thing, before we move off Xerxes, Mordecai, and Esther, we need to not be too hard on them. That sound like I'm being hard on them? I have all, believe me, compassion in the world for them because they're me and they're you. How? Don't be too hard on Xerxes because we all trade one form of trying to be king for another when we lose control. When you lose control, you and I typically trade one form of trying to be king for another form of trying to be king. When that one doesn't work out, we just, how many kings can there be? Maybe you're in the middle right now of, look at me, right? And it's going pretty well for you. Or maybe you've cratered in that one, and now you're at, look at her. Or look at him. (laughs) Maybe that's where you are right now. Maybe, don't be too hard on Mordecai, because when we lose control, we also forget God, right? I mean, all the chaos that's going on, and I've seen it as a pastor now. I've been doing this for a while, but now six months now, I've noticed, I just started noticing something. Oh my word, everybody's having a hard time. This, and myself included, I'm not putting myself out of it. All the chaos of these six months have hit us, and what it's done, it's like a fish that hits a cup of water, and it starts pulling the water out of the cup, but the water was always in the cup. Your heart is the cup, and this COVID six-month upheaval is a massive fish that just hits your life, hits your relationships, hits your relationship with the church, hit, hit everything you have. And it has spilled stuff in your heart that you never knew was there is coming out of your heart right now. And everybody's freaking out. And so most of you blame each other or blame someone else or blame an institution or blame your coach or blame your parent or blame your church. Or you're, you're blaming. You're in that mode right now. Others of you are just like, man, I was lonely before. Now I'm like off the charts lonely. And then what are you going to do? Are you going to get, are you going to be like, I have no friends? Are you going to be like, I need to be a good friend? This is what's happening right now. So, All this stuff is triggering your loneliness, your boredom, your unhappiness, your sadness, your anger, your blame shifting. Everything's coming out right now. And so here's the deal. Do you forget God or do you remember him? Typically we forget him. So that's what Mordecai did. Don't be too hard on Esther either. We also forget who we are when we lose control. So we become Esther what the Bible calls the old self instead of Hadassah, what the Bible calls the new self. Because 
you're a Christian. And if Paul was here, he'd be like, oh, I love this book. I love this book. This is like right out of my theology, right? He would say, it's the two selves. You're a split self. You're an old self and a new self as a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you're one self called the edemic self, the old self, the sinful self, the collapsed self, the edemic self. If you're a Christian, you're a new self, but you've got two natures in one person. You just had one nature in one person when you weren't a Christian. As a Christian, you have two natures in one person. That's what this text is communicating with the two names. (laughs) Isn't that incredible? I just love that theology. So here's what happens. So now in the church, what's going on today in this six month of upheaval is in the church, what we've done is we've created a horrible teaching and doctrine called race identity dogma, race identity activism. In other words, we're telling everybody in the church that you're Esther, not Hadassah. You're your old self. Not your new self. And you know what happens when you do that? And I know this is going to be very offensive for a lot of people, but I have to say it. You become a racist. You become a Marxist. I've spent lots of time in Marxist countries sharing the gospel. I know what it looks like. I know what the belief system is. I know what the view of justice is. I know what the power struggle is. I know what they base identity on. Race identity, dogma, and activism will overthrow hearts, homes, relationships, communities, churches, cultures, countries. Go ahead and send your hate mail. How do you survive losing control? How do you do this? How? How do you do this? Again, the devil took him on a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, do that. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Xerxes traded one form of trying to be king for another. But you know what? Jesus never did. Never. Jesus, all Jesus had to do was bow down to a pretend king. All he had to do was bow down to a pretend king. You know what? He gets all the kingdoms of the watery grave. He gets all the kingdoms of what the stranger things, if you're a fan of that, the upside down world. He gets all the kingdoms of what the Bible calls the fallen world. This is the world we live in. So in the Bible, the Old Testament talks about the the realm of the dead and the underworld and the watery grave. It's not talking about ultimately eternal realities. It's talking about what happened when sin entered the world and turned this world upside down. Stranger things. Interesting. And all Jesus had to do was bow down and he gets all the kingdoms of the fallen world without suffering. And he said, no, for you, for you, he said. 
Mordecai, like Mordecai, we forget God when we lose control, but Jesus did not. Jesus said to Satan, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So Jesus says no to Satan, no to forgetting God. There's only one God, and he never forgot him. <laughs> but why did he do it? Did Jesus have to do this because, you know, I don't know, it's because he and God are God? No, because he's a human being who's now representing you and representing all the human beings that have forgotten God. So when he says no to forgetting God, guess what? He's earning you That now is yours. Like you just never forgot God. Like Esther, we forget who we are when we lose control. On that mountain, Jesus had a choice, y'all. He had one choice. It was, he had two choices, but here's the choice before him. He could have more glory than any human being has ever had and ever will have without suffering. Or he could have more suffering than any human being has ever had and will ever have to be who he truly is. To be himself. Who is that? Savior of the world. The lover of your soul. Your best friend. And Jesus said yes to be in Hadassah. No to Esther for you. So how do you survive losing control? Not by trading one form of trying to be king for another. Okay? Uh, what's the other one, the second one? Not by forgetting God. And the third one, not by forgetting who you are. So how do you do it? Clinging to the one who has control. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you speak us back to life through your word, and we thank you that this is your doing, this is your work, this is your grace, this is your love for us. You've given us your word. In fact, you've given us your word as the tangible place of your presence. Here you are. Where are you? Here you are in your word.